Hello, I'm Rhiannon. You're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show, our first episode of our brand new season of our in-depth series on technology. That you see things that uh, may be disturbing. Over time, that awareness of wrongdoing sort of builds up and you feel compelled to talk about it. With the development of modern communications and digital technology, surveillance has become much more advanced and more invasive. As citizens, we surrender our privacy for guarantees of security. But how far should this trade-off go? This episode seeks to explore whether civil society and international law can constrain and limit global surveillance, and if so, how? The systems are now so intelligent They can work out who people are, really know them in a way that even their relatives don't know them. Today's episode features two guests. First, I chat with Dr. Kevin McNish, a digital ethics consultant at Soprasteria and academic at the University of Leeds. He holds a master's degree in international relations and philosophy and has a PhD in philosophy. He is also an expert in the ethics of AI and surveillance and privacy. After the break, you'll hear my discussion with Dr. Moira Patterson, a professor of information law at Monash University. Welcome, Kevin, to the Global Questions podcast. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to have you on the episode today. We'll be talking all things global surveillance. Are you able to kick us off with a brief introduction into who you are, your work, and how you got involved in the world of technology and surveillance and ethics? My first degree was in philosophy, after which I joined the civil service, working for British intelligence, working for GCHQ. I then left that and returned to academia to do a PhD in philosophy again, and ended up, although it wasn't my original intention, working on the ethics of surveillance. It's the time of Edward Snowden, when he he came out with his revelations just about midway through my doctorate. And so very, very interesting time. And then that kind of set my course for the next 10 years or so in academia. And then in in the last few years, moving a little more over towards artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. And then a year ago, I left academia and moved into the private sector. So I now work as a digital ethics consultant for a company called Soprasteria in the UK. Nice. It's a a very colourful professional career, that's for sure. So now with surveillance, whether it's at a very small level or large mass global scale, it's obviously very highly politicised. As it currently stands, how would you describe the role of surveillance for the state, both at the domestic and international level? Oh, crikey. That that is a huge question. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it also partly depends on the state, I think. But if we stick with liberal democracies, I think one of the main purposes for surveillance is one actually which doesn't often get talked about, which is welfare and just simply the functioning of a contemporary state, which requires knowledge of the workforce, knowledge of sickness and illness and those sorts of questions in order to be able to provide adequate welfare. And I think a lot of surveillance actually happens on that level. There's then, of course, the more common situation of thinking along the lines of security, such as CCTV and ANPR, automated number plate recognition systems, to track people either by intelligence services, security services, or the police. And then on the global level, you're really talking about international espionage at that point, trying to work out what adversaries and sometimes friends are thinking about doing next. 
huge area that falls under that category of surveillance. So if we take the bigger end of examples of mass surveillance on an international level, for example, Five Eyes, and for our listeners, I'll give a bit of context. It's a global intelligence sharing alliance formed during the Cold War between US, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So a great example if we're looking at surveillance on a mass level. What do you think are the pros and cons of these types of alliances and what possible implications are there for residents in these countries? Well, I suppose I would challenge the notion that that is an example of mass surveillance and that might require some definition as to what you mean by mass surveillance. In my thinking, mass surveillance is usually general surveillance of a population. Uh, One thing I didn't say in the introduction is I grew up in West Berlin during the Cold War. And so I grew up looking over the wall and occasionally going through the Berlin Wall to East Germany. For a genuine example of mass surveillance, you're looking at that sort of world where you genuinely have government and, and even citizens spying on each other as a matter of course. In the Five Eyes case, you do have intelligence agencies carrying out targeted surveillance on individuals for general intelligence purposes. And you know, classically, that would be for standard espionage and then more recently thinking about terrorism as well. Uh, I know in the early days of the Five Eyes community, it was very significant to get footprints from satellites. Places like Australia and New Zealand were extremely helpful for America and the UK in particular to be able to receive satellite footprint information from other parts of the world. With the rise of fibre, I think that's become a little less so, although I suspect that there is still a fibre equivalent of that going on. And then I think as well, finally, there's the advantage of being able to share skill sets. The Five Eyes community specifically was built around signals intelligence or SIGINT, a lot of which involves code breaking. In that case, if you have a shared adversary, then once one of you has broken the code, you can share that with the others. Those are the sort of general advantages which come from it. And of course, more recently with the Snowden revelations, you do have that issue of Snowden revealing that there was general internet collection going on within the Five Eyes community. And that's certainly what some people have seen as mass surveillance. But I think in that case, at least how it appears to be the case, that collection is happening en masse and then the information is being sifted through looking for keywords or looking for individuals or whatever uh, for their specific communications. And so those organisations would argue it is still a matter of targeted surveillance. Do you think there are any other kind of disadvantages to these alliances or ethical impacts that are important to consider with such far-reaching international alliances? Well, I mean, there's an exclusionary aspect to them. (laughs) But of course, that that always happens with any sort of alliance is that you're either in or you're out. Actually, it's not quite as binary as that, because you might be having one foot in, you might have a relationship, but not a full relationship with a particular intelligence organisation. And certainly, uh, there have been some countries that have been very frustrated or very vocal in their opposition to the Five Eyes community. But those are often those that are doing their own version of exactly the same thing only they've been a little less public about it. In a genuinely equal multipolar world, then one might argue these are not that advantageous, but we don't live in such a world. We do live in a world where there are rogue states, as we're seeing right now at the moment, you know, in Ukraine. And so in those sort of situations, I think it is a good thing for global security as much as possible to be able to understand what the intentions and likely actions of states like that are. I suppose when people hear the term mass surveillance, it can often be quite a a negative one. 
In terms of legal and regulatory frameworks for these far-reaching organisations and alliances to do with surveillance, what type of frameworks are out there that are used to encourage the responsible use of cyber intelligence and to hold governments accountable? Again, thinking of the Five Eyes community, there are internal laws that govern how that information is used. And very significantly, in the light, again, of the Snowden revelations, I think Privacy International and various others took GCHQ to court. And they won, I think, in in one of the cases, or at least one of the cases they won. Sorry, I say court, I think it was a tribunal. To me, that is demonstrative of the fact there is a legal system which can find against the intelligence services. That sort of scenario is just very hard to imagine in a country like Russia or a country like China. The idea of taking the FSB to court and winning against them just seems utterly ludicrous. And so I think there is quite a significant distinction to be made there. So I think those frameworks do exist in some countries, but not in all countries. It's just You've touched on this briefly before, but um, I suppose another really interesting facet of this discussion is around whistleblowers and freedom of information and how this all kind of ties into democracy as well. You've mentioned Edward Snowden a couple of times. I'd love to hear your perspective on this case from your background with philosophy and ethics and also your thoughts on how civil society and citizens can work to hold governments to account for a lot of their surveillance on journalists and human rights activists. Yeah, for a start, I think surveillance on journalists and human rights activists is wrong. (laughs) I'll just state that out right now. You know, there are obviously limits to that. Obviously, just because you're a journalist doesn't mean that you can then carry contraband. But the Snowden case itself, I'm still kind of mixed on it. On the whole, I'm in favour of whistleblowers and I'm in favour of protecting whistleblowers for obvious ethical reasons. I mean, I think the significant thing for me with Snowden was that he left the States when he made the announcements that he did. Snowden says he feared for his life. and Maybe he genuinely did. And so he ran. You know, if he had grounds for that, then fair enough. However, of course, another contemporary with Snowden is Chelsea Manning, who revealed the state telexes a few years earlier. And Chelsea Manning not only was tried and went to prison, certainly didn't find himself being shot, but was then excused and given a pardon by Obama at the end of his office and is now a free person. To me, that undermines some of what Snowden was doing. Now, other people might be very upset with that. But I think as a result of that, of course, the only place that he could flee to was particularly non-democratic countries. And so he ends up arguing in favour of democracy, but has to be sheltered by non-democratic regime. That's why I think I end up being somewhat mixed in his particular case, as is invariably the case with these things. You know, in principle, the ethics could be nice and ideal, but in practice, (laughs) it often gets very, very messy. And so we've, you know, had a look at surveillance in liberal democracies kind of want to flip to the other side of the coin. Looking at, say, for example, China, we've seen the establishment of smart city surveillance regimes, which are fascinating in themselves, but wildly complicated. Do you think these things will be a model for other authoritarian regimes around the world or could take root elsewhere? And what's your perspective on these? I mean, clearly China is already a major exporter of technology. And you know, across the world, we're looking at smart cities and how to develop smart cities. Uh, I worked on a project a few years ago looking at smart cities across Europe. So yes, I think that smart cities are coming. They are very effective in some cases, quite daunting, scary in other cases. 
I'm somewhat mixed with the Chinese case, funnily enough. You would think that I would be very anti it. And there's an extent to which I am, but I came across a statistic recently about the number of police officers in Chinese states and the proportion of police officers to citizens was minuscule, which meant that for those states, the upholding of law is simply not very easy to do. And so they are looking at this as an alternative. I know they've also had trouble in China around issues of debt and repaying debt because they've changed very rapidly from a planned economy to a capitalist system in the last 40 years. That has had knock-on effects with how much you can trust people when they're selling online. So I had some sympathy with looking at technology for such a vast country and the vast population they're trying to deal with. At the same time, they have held Canadian businessmen under arrest in a tit-for-tat move for what was happening in Canada with a Chinese citizen. They are repressing artists and other dissenters. And you look at what's been happening in Hong Kong as well. And so there are clearly unpleasant authoritarian actions carried on. And when you have a surveillance system in place, that enables that authoritarian repression to continue apace and to expand. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. The case study of China as well, like I was reading something about how they've used technology to be able to see if people are wearing masks during the pandemic, using that mass surveillance to crack down on rule breakers and things like that. Speaking of COVID and the pandemic, do you think that it has impacted the way people view surveillance, whether they're more accepting of the benefits of mass surveillance or cautious of it as impinging on their individual rights? Funnily enough, I'm not sure that the pandemic has made that much difference. <laughs> I might find out. But certainly in the early days of the Track and Trace app, the take-up was remarkably low. People were saying that to be successful, we need 70% take-up. And in actual fact, in trials in the early days, the take-up was around 30 35%. If they had been right in what they said, that this requires 70% take-up, then the app should have been taken down and discontinued. But that wasn't the case. So there's a degree to which we have accepted a greater level of surveillance. However, the nature of that surveillance, um, across most of the West, we ended up with the Alphabet Apple system, which was based around Bluetooth and near-field communications and didn't have a centralised function. So the government could get statistics, but it wouldn't know individuals that had COVID or that had tested positive. One thing that that does lead into, though, is the increasing relationship between state and big tech. As we've exactly seen with these pandemic surveillance tools, you have Alphabet, the company who owns Google and Apple coming together, offering a surveillance technology which seems to be more popular than that offered by governments. Google knows so much about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, my bank has access to so much information about me as to what I spend, what I choose to put on debit card as opposed to credit card, huge volumes of information. And so coming back to the earlier points you're mentioning about mass surveillance, I mean, genuine mass surveillance, the sort of surveillance that Google and the banks have now, well, let's just even stick with big tech. Um, that's the sort of stuff which the Stasi in the former East Germany would have been slathering over. They would have loved to have that level of information that we quite freely hand over. One serious question in society we should be asking ourselves is the levels of accountability that these tech companies have by contrast with the levels of accountability that government has. Governments themselves are democratically accountable. We take them to elections every four years. We have free press. 
that is able to report damaging information about them and so on. And yet these large companies don't necessarily have that same level of accountability. They're accountable to their shareholders, and that's pretty much it. Now, ideally, those companies, and I think this has been happening over the last five to 10 years, is those companies are beginning to take ethics more seriously. But, you know, it hasn't been that long since Francis Haugen blew the whistle on what had happened in Facebook. And of course, you've got the Cambridge Analytica scandal from a few years ago. The more these scandals come into the public awareness, the more these companies are needing to respond and say, OK, we've got to take ethics seriously. We've talked about some really fascinating things today. And I think that issues like this will continue to be a very big and complicated question for the future, especially surrounding big tech. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. If any of our listeners want to know more about you, read some of your work or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, Ironically, in the light of what I've just been saying, my Google Scholar page is probably not a bad place to start. Nice plug for Google. Exactly. (laughs) That's where all of my publications are. But I've got a book out on the ethics of surveillance, and I'm currently working on one on surveillance in times of emergency, which hopefully will be out next year. To get in touch with me, go through the Google Scholar page or just uh, kevin.macnish at gmail.com. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you again, Rhiannon. It's been a pleasure to chat. Keep listening because after the break, I chat to Dr. Moira Patterson on the current challenges and implications of global surveillance and what it means for our future. Do you love Global Questions? We are a new up-and-coming podcast that is run by young people for young people. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot and it helps us gain the reach that we deserve. Welcome, Dr. Moira Patterson, to the Global Questions podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today as we'll be talking all things global surveillance. Are you able to kick us off with a bit of a brief introduction into who you are, your work, and how you came to be interested in things like global surveillance, freedom of information and privacy and things like that? Sure. I've had a a long career in the law faculty at Monash University where I specialised in information law, but particularly in privacy and FOI. I've always been interested in technology and in recent years, of course, with AI and uh, all the technological developments, privacy and surveillance have become quite a big issue. So to open the discussion, how do you describe the role of surveillance for the state, both at a domestic and an international level? Okay, so in the in the context that we're talking about today, I'd see surveillance as the, the systematic observation of individuals and in a form that's much broader than traditional visual surveillance, surveillance of personal data, you know, through the internet, eavesdropping, geolocation tracking and so forth. As far as the state's concerned, surveillance has traditionally been carried out for national security. It can and it does extend more broadly to protecting the state's interests, so that might even come down to commercial interests as well. I think the breadth of state surveillance has really ramped up. What do you think are the current and emerging challenges in this area of surveillance? The technology is a big part of it, particularly the development of AI and machine learning and so forth. That now makes it possible to do so very much more, to understand people much better, to be able to locate them much better. You don't have to know their name, their date of birth and so forth. 
the systems are now so intelligent, they can work out who people are, their personality types, they can really know them in a way that even their relatives don't know them. And that now makes it possible to manipulate, to discriminate. It creates a tendency not to accord due process. And that's relevant in the state context, even with things, you know, like law enforcement, national security, and so on with dragnet surveillance. In your perspective, where are we seeing effective and good global surveillance? Is it in things such as national security and more on an international level? And then in contrast to this, do you have any examples of where surveillance may have drastically impinged on an individual's rights to privacy? Look, it's hard to give individual examples and certainly a lot of the, the bad stuff came out as a result of people like Edward Snowden. The surveillance is now more efficient because it's it's more powerful and there are some good uses for it. We've got international crimes such as the pedophile rings and the sharing of child porn and those sorts of things. And, and I'm sure that's also been the case with some terrorists. Crime is now international. The problem is that as the technology becomes more powerful, it's much more possible to what I call dragnet, which is you just search for the needle in the haystack. You're not going on leads or surveilling people who you have some reason to think could be doing something wrong. You're just kind of sweeping. And that, I think, throws on its head a lot of the traditional protections that we've had, you know, with warrants and search and seizure and the Fourth Amendment in the US and so forth, which are designed to provide a balance because, of course, the temptation with that is to go broader too. So it ends up you're not just foiling plans to assassinate people, you're looking for far more mundane types of activities or activities that are subversive and so on. And cleaning the hands of authoritarian governments, that's extremely dangerous, but even in the hands of democracies, it changes how our democracy feels if people constantly feel they're being watched. And the long-term effects of that are quite harmful to a democracy, to a society. So although the, the people that are involved in the surveillance mightn't think that, the reality is if you've got everybody who's sort of tiptoeing around and not willing to criticise and whistleblowers are scared to come out and so forth, I think that really lessens the quality of our of our democracy and our liberty mm-hmm. and so on. Oh, absolutely. It definitely has a flow-on effect for democracies around the world, even in Australia. And you've touched on this briefly, but I really like this idea that global surveillance and the rights of the individual is kind of all impinged around the idea of balance, striking that balance between things like national security and surveillance to keep people safe and secure, but also the democratic right to you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the individual and things like that. How do you think we ensure that this balance is maintained? I think unless people care about it, just the way it's evolving, it's going to get worse and worse. We'd all accept, as I say, serious crimes, serious national security threats and so on. There's this balance with safety. But I think there's not enough awareness. And so it, it does have to start partly at the ground level. But it's also a question of transparency. And there is some reporting of the extent to which for example, agencies are able to access information under the Telecommunications Interception and Access Act, statistics of who's using it. 
So we do have some protective mechanisms, but people are not aware of them. And then it's the question of what, having appropriate watchdogs with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and ensuring those protections for, for journalists and activists and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Because at the moment, for someone like a Snowden, you know, the only choice really was to go public like that. I really think that he felt there wasn't someone he could have gone to that would have received the information confidentially, had the the will to act on it and the powers to actually do something. And so the only solution in that circumstance is just to make it totally public. Whereas if we had also some other mechanisms that are more effective and that we do have some measures built in in our system, whistleblowing is a really important safety mechanism. You've touched on some really great points there about protections of whistleblowers, transparency, all these things that kind of underpin democracy and, and how that all flows into it as well. I suppose this takes me to my last question. Our season this time round is all about technology in the future. I'd love to hear your perspective on what do you think the future of global surveillance is? Are you optimistic? Are you hesitant? What, what's your perspective on the future of global surveillance? I like to be optimistic, but I must say, I What I've seen and the rate at which it's escalating does give me cause for concern. And one of the things, too, is that we tend to be concerned about government, and rightly so, but there's a tremendous amount happening in the private sector. And in a sense, there's sort of an intersection. And I think you mentioned China. One of the things that's been really controversial is that social credit system where they have this massive surveillance and then that goes towards your social credit points and then they affect your quality of life. Under our system, a lot of that's happening with the private sector. So although the government's not doing that, the private sector is, and it's done primarily for targeted advertising, but then that information's gathered. The things that concern me are the power to manipulate people, the fact that these technologies are used in ways that discriminate against people, and that they're also used in ways that deny people due process. So this is affecting the nature of our society. So whether it's happening as in China, which is, to my mind, a pretty horrible system, that social credit system, or whether it's happening here, you know, when you go for employment, where the information that's been gathered about you is actually now used to inform that decision-making and perhaps in ways that you're not aware of and don't have an opportunity to respond to, is it's quite worrying. And the way I see things panning out, it's continuing down that line because it is so powerful and it's so efficient. So you have 100 job applicants, you can reduce them to two or one. It's based on this information and this artificial intelligence. It's dehumanising. It's manipulative. It can be used to manipulate people either to buy products or to vote for parties. And I think that's going to be the real dilemma, that people really need to understand what's happening and then just ask themselves what's legitimate, what's not legitimate. What underlies all of that is the surveillance, all this um, data economy where personal data is a prime commodity. But I'd like to be optimistic and I do hope we can get there, but the trend to date has been a very big upward trend in surveillance while it's brought a lot of efficiency, I think it's also brought a lot of downsides. 
I think we can definitely be cautiously optimistic and continue to ask questions as well. It's a very big, important factor with all this. Moira, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, It's been a really interesting discussion, very relevant, I'm sure, to lots of our listeners as well. If any of our listeners do want to know more about you, read some of your work or get in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? The the easiest way is just to look at my website at Monash University. If you go to the Monash University Law Faculty, you know, you can look at my publications. And yes, I think that's that's the the best way. Yeah, well, we will link that definitely in in our episode description for our listeners. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That's all for this week's in-depth episode. Join us next week for the wrap-up, Josh and Kelly's fortnightly recap of news from around the world. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram at Global Questions for memes, quizzes and regular news updates. Links will be in the episode description. We'll see you next week.